Welcome to the One Hour Minute, where we continue our hard target search for fun and facts through the minutes of the 1993 action classic, The Fugitive. I'm Roger. And I'm Susan. And this is Minute 7 of The Fugitive. Susan, we are back for another week. Um, This is, I guess I would call this week like... uh, Interrogation week? Interrogation week on the one-hour minute. We're going to spend almost this entire week in a very uh, depressing-looking... Very small room. room. Very drab room. That's right. With uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable questions. That's right. So, yeah, so since you brought it up, um, this minute starts with a lot of staring. (laughs) And it ends with some mildly suspicious questions. (laughs) Um, and along the way this week, uh, so I'm very excited today, we will get a chance to meet um, one of our two detectives, uh, Detective um, Rossetti, played by the amazing Joseph uh, Kosala. Uh, and then tomorrow we'll meet uh, Detective Kelly, who's uh, played by Ron Dean. But uh, this is the other thing that's really exciting about this week, and I'm, you brought this up um, last week, this is definitely one of the parts of the movie that is highly improvised yes uh i mean based on my research essentially this entire interview scene was improvised and harrison ford had no idea what questions he was going to get asked right and and that adds to the uh suspense of it i think because you could sort of tell that yeah i mean i don't want to go into the whole method acting thing but like he he, you could tell that he doesn't know what's going to happen and that that makes him tense and it it adds some that's a a quality of the acting that i'm not sure you would get from a scripted interview harrison ford's acting in these three minutes and going into next week is amazing well this is the very beginning of my obsession with harrison ford's hand oh yeah because he's he's we're gonna so much hand acting in this in this minute. We're gonna see it more next week. So listeners, yeah. you can't see this because you don't. This isn't a video podcast. But like next week is when we'll get that thing where he like curls his hands into all sort of contortions and does finger guns and stuff like that. But yeah, this is the minute where we start to see this. I guess I mean if you if you and we're gonna talk about uh, Joseph Casala uh, later. He's a real cop, and so presumably that made this doing this scene probably a little bit easier for him because he is just basically method acting his real job. Yeah, he's just like he's, you know, well, because it's improvised, but what I don't know uh, that I didn't see in the research uh, was whether it was improvised to the point where someone handed him questions and then he just asked them. Uh, so it was like maybe the director decided the, the questions, but Harrison didn't know. Or if the actors themselves, uh, if Kelly and Rossetti had to come up with their own questions. I think this was improvised. I mean, I think there's a difference between getting... Uh, getting script on the day of and literally having to come up. I mean, my guess, and again, I don't have this information either. My guess is that the script just said, you know, like, and here are, here are the facts that you need to cover in your interview. Right. And you can approach this however you want. Now, I don't know if the start at point A and you you need to get to point B. Right. (laughs) So like the Blair Witch approach to police interviewing. Um, I don't, so like, I don't know ahead of time if Kasala and Dean were sort of like, you know, met beforehand. I mean, one thing I will say that I think we start to see in this minute is it's, this is kind of like good cop, bad cop. It's not really good cop, bad cop, but for sure, Ron Dean, who plays Detective Kelly is like, he's the nasty one. Well, it's sort of good cop, silent cop. And I think the silence is intimidating because one of my notes here is Kelly has perfected his cop stare. 
Yeah, and and this this minute starts. I think I counted it. This minute starts with ten seconds of just silent staring. Everyone is looking at each other. Like, what's you gonna ask me some questions? Which I'm I'm assuming is right out of the police interrogation manual. Oh, of course. People hate uncomfortable silences, right? That's right. You know, 10 seconds. It's funny you should bring that up because, you know, so listeners, I may have already mentioned this. I am a high school teacher. And one of the things that I try to do in my first week is to do my first waiting for 10 seconds. I try to wait for 10 seconds every time I ask a question in one of my classes because, so Susan, here's a quick poll. What would you estimate is the average wait time for most high school teachers, meaning the time between when they ask a question and when they've decided that it's time to move on and that they should start talking again? 4.36 seconds. You're very generous. You're actually over by almost half. Wow. I read somewhere that it's actually 2.7 seconds is how long teachers are willing to allow silence to breathe in the room before they treat it like a miasma. Do you even have um, time as a student to like formulate a response in that amount of time? No. But I think, question is, of course. I think it makes the teacher feel better if they're like, oh, I've asked a question. Now let me show you how smart I am by answering it for you or not risking the potential that one of your students doesn't know the answer or gives the wrong answer. I think the better teachers that I've seen, and I'm not claiming that I am one, the better teachers that I've seen will really stop and wait for people to think and come up with an idea. And, and that's what's happening here too, except at the end of this, you don't get an A, you get charged with murder. You're sentenced to death. Congratulations. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, uh, uh, as a, from the student point of view, there's that uncomfortable, like the first five seconds are like, oh, he's not talking. And then the second five seconds are like, okay, well, someone's going to have to say something or he might never speak again. <laughs> I have heard of teachers doing that too. The sort of like, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait. And yep. if we have to do this for the whole period, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not that extreme. Oh, that seems like a waste of everyone's time. But I also don't teach like humanities classes where having student discussion is sort of the cornerstone of the class. Do you have any other notes before we get to uh, have our little our, our little ER scene? Well, uh, Rosetti is left-handed, which I always notice people uh, when they're left-handed. Oh, that's nice. I didn't notice that either. I'm not sure why. Are you left-handed? I am not. I'm fairly ambidextrous, though. I can write and draw with both hands. Can you bowl with both hands? Um, yes. Uh, I am left-handed. You are? Cool. I am. <laughs> I'm one of those people. I have, <laughs> Finally, the people I have, that the world is not designed for. <laughs> no, the world very much persecutes those of us who are left-handed. Sometimes we are forced to, say, learn a sport in gym class the right-handed way. Sometimes we don't have tools that fit our hands properly. And every single time we try to write with a pen or pencil, it ends up on the back of our hand. Yeah, and smudged across the page. Yes, thank you for pointing that out too. I'm not self-conscious about that at all. I did see a meme today that had like two packages of the exact same screwdriver and one said uh, right-handed, $1.99, and the other one said left-handed, $3.99. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that when I think of scissors, for example. Like the left-handed scissors are expensive. So Rosetti's left-handed. What else did you notice? Um, let's see. Um, and it's like, like Kelly and Rossetti, well, especially Rossetti start to ask, they start out with very simple questions, sort of like getting to the, you know, the basics of the, of what happened that night. And then you can, by the end of the minute, you can start to feel that they're slowly starting to escalate. Yeah. It, it seems pretty clear. I don't, honestly, I don't think they're asking any questions that they don't already think they know the answer to. That's not the point of this. The point of this is to 
try to trip up Kimball in either a lie or to get him to confess and just to generally try to make him squirm. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing as well, especially when questions come in a rapid succession that you'll slip up and say something stupid. Yeah, I'm looking for you. We're going to talk a lot about that tomorrow because, I mean, tomorrow is when uh, Detective Kelly really gets a chance to let his jerk flag fly. <laughs> um, anything else before we get to uh, uh, pretend we're on the set of ER? Nope. So this is our, our first, like, real medical scene, right? Because we know that uh, from a previous minute that Kimball was called in at the last minute to deal with uh, this... Uh, this unexpected patient. Um, there's a lot of medical mumbo jumbo in this minute, and I tried to research some of it. I don't know how much you researched. Well, I, first of all, I when I was watching the minutes split into minutes, I couldn't understand what the surgeon was necessarily always saying. So I went to my DVD and turned on the closed captions. So he said, like the you know the the gallbladder is is hot, yeah, uh, and is bleeding, and something about the liver. <laughs> So I think the liver becomes important later on in the story. Sure does. And in that fact, everybody, liver will be important. Chekhov's liver. Chekhov's liver. Uh, Lentz also gets name-checked in this minute. Uh-huh. Which will be important later as well. That he is a patient of Lentz and he's on the RDU90, whatever the drug is called, yeah. um, uh, trial. So that's all important. Um he also mentions, so one of the doctors in this minute says that this patient's PT is 36, mm -hmm. which I was curious. Um, so I did a little bit of medical research. So this is a medical minute. Apparently, so I think this is true. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong. I think they're actually referring to something called a prothro. Oh, let me try again. This is this is almost as hard as Yerun Krabbe. This is the prothrombin time test. That's what PT stands for, prothrombin time, which is a test with the blood. It's a test that measures how fast your blood can coagulate. Right. Which is also why one of the doctors in this minute says that his coags are all screwed up. Yeah. So right away we're finding out that people who people who come back in into contact with uh, Dr. Lentz start to have problems. They yeah, they start to die. <laughs> they, they they get a, a wild ride on the hemophiliac coaster. Yes, they certainly do. Um, I, well, I what, there's a couple of logistical things for this scene that um, I, I, I made some notes about. First of all, um, they complain that Dr. Lentz is not answering his page. Mm -hmm. And then I was wondering, maybe he doesn't have a, a, a car phone because, you know, not everyone does in the 90s. And then... Um, if he doesn't have a car phone, doesn't that, like, could that be important later? I don't know. <laughs> It'll certainly make it easier to dispose of him. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoilers, he dies in a car crash. Um, my question is, okay, a couple of questions. First of all, how long have they been operating on this poor guy? Because in theory, Kimball had time to drive Helen home and then get changed out of his tux probably and then drive to the, or drive to the hospital. So they've been in surgery for quite some time with this guy, I think. Which is certainly possible. I mean, we don't let's let's pretend it took him an hour to get back to the hospital and scrub up. Um right. there's a lot of surgical again, not an expert. I didn't even say at a holiday and express last night, but I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of medical procedures that can take six, eight, ten hours. Oh yeah. Um it's based, going badly. Based on what we see here, which kind of looks like a scene out of the movie Aliens, <laughs> like this whoever's poor 
whoever poor bastard this is, like their chest is wide open. Oh yeah. They are just there's blood everywhere. <laughs> um my other question is this. Now, we know that uh Helen and Richard went to this event. We don't know how they got there, but they're driving home together. Now, have are they did they get a lift there and they're driving home in the car that Irun Krabbe borrowed? Or have they left that car behind? Have they left their other car behind? I have so many questions. Yeah, so t- tell you what, um, just for the to to just kind of tease the the big reveal that we're going to get at the end of the movie about why there's no fourth century. Uh, let's not go into too much detail about that. Although we do know, so so if if I understand last week's sequence of events clearly, um, Nichols borrowed Kimball's car before he ran into him at the benefit. Yes, and told him that the car was there. Gave him, you know, his keys. Keys are in the ignition, so he's already used the car um, yes. to presumably, I don't know, go home and like unlock it, maybe unlock the apartment. Well, because not only does he have to unlock the apartment, he has to undo the alarm. Right. Um, so he's got to prep things for what's going to happen. So is your question like? Well, my question is, how did they get there and how are they getting home? Because in theory, they could have gone home in different cars if they drove there together. And, the, and then a car has been that belongs to them has been delivered, then they would drive home separately. But if uh, Yim Krame has um, borrowed the car and then is dropping it off with them at the hotel, then they're coming home together. Then they only have one car, so they went in a cab? That is a, that is a possibly unanswerable question. I have a feeling, I'm just going to, my gut instinct, my gut instinct is that they have one car. Mm-hmm. In last week's episodes, they were driving home in said car. Yes. That Richard dropped Helen off at the apartment, turned right around, and drove back to Cook County Hospital. Okay. And he didn't left. go in and get changed. So, he, so then, in theory, knowing how the movie ends, everyone, spoilers, if you haven't seen the entire movie yet, what are you doing? Stop and do it all right now. Spoilers for the end of the movie. So, in theory, this is my theory, that Gabriel Krabbe borrows the car, goes, picks up uh, one-armed guy... Drops him off at the apartment. He gets into the apartment, stays there, waits for Helen and, and Richard to come home. But Richard doesn't come home. Richard drops her off and then continues on to the hospital. Oh, that's interesting. I tell you what, I will agree with all of your theory of the crime, except for the part where uh, Nichols and Sykes decide to play carpool. Because if you're actually organizing the crime... I don't think you want to be within a country mile of the person who's actually going to take carry it out. Right. And, you know, we've seen that Sykes is perfectly mobile. He can get around town. He can get to the hospital. He could get anywhere he needs to. I yeah. think I think that Nichols goes goes to the apartment early to prep it. And then that's a good question. Um, do we think that Sykes is already in the apartment when they get home waiting for him? Or do we think that... He, do we think that he comes after um, Richard leaves? But um, but if he goes after, then they don't need the keys and they don't need the alarm code. Well, sure they. Well, because Helen's already in the house. You know what? That's a good point. Although, I mean, it's not like he's going to knock and be like, "Hello, I'm your murderer." <laughs> um, hmm, that's interesting. I mean, you know, all of those theories are correct. So, tell you what, listeners, why don't you? Right in, we'll have our special spoiler 
uh, edition set of comments to this minute, and we'll see, um, and we'll talk about it more too when we find out at the end sort of exactly what was going on here. But uh, I don't know. It's a good question. I just like the, the timeline was just confusing me a little bit there. Yeah. One of the other things that I got out of this section, um, which is our our OR section, oh, are they? Um, it, like you can tell from the way that the other actors in this scene react that Richard Kimball is clearly the most respected doctor here in this scene. Like, he elbows them out of the way. Well, okay, elbowing is pretty strong, Susan. <laughs> it's not like he's like a power forward and he's knocking them into the third row. Like he needs to get in and do his work. Yeah, and he says, give me some room here. And then one of them moves out and he moves in. And then he's he, got, he dives into the chest cavity. <laughs> uh, my guess is that whoever he subbed for was like, oh, thank God, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Now you're somebody who actually knows how to operate on this. I can go watch the game. Or, yes, I can go watch the game. I can find <laughs> out the score. Kimball, do you like how Kimball has those those awesome sun, uh, those awesome eyeglasses with the extra eyeglasses? Uh, I think a lot of surgeons have those. Anybody who works with minute things has those kind of things. Whether you're repairing watches or like your surgery or whatever. I think they're a little bit more high-tech now than they are in this image. <laughs> He's the only one in this minute that has them. So has he just got bad eyesight? Is that what you're saying? No, I think that he is the person, as you say, who is tasked with sticking his hands in this chest cavity. Yeah. And so he better make sure that he's, you know, stitching up a punctured gallbladder and not like doing a number on this guy's pancreas. Right. Um, is this the only movie in which we ever see Harrison Ford as a doctor? Off the top of your head? Well, except for Dr. Jones. It's a different guy. A medical doctor. A medical doctor. Um. <laughs> That's a good question. You're putting me on the spot. Um, call him Dr. Jones. Yeah, you call him Dr. Jones. Um, <laughs> I, do uh, I've never seen What Lies Beneath because I've heard it's not very good. Mm. Um, that uh, sort of quasi-horror drama movie with Michelle Pfeiffer. But That's some kind of medical thing in it. I don't know if he's a doctor in that. This, this is the only movie where I feel like I can remember watching him practice medicine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think we already mentioned this, but um, he spent a lot of time shadowing doctors as part of his prep for this movie to, mm -hmm. you know, kind of be able to pull off uh, a relatively short. Well, that's not true, because there are plenty of other times in the movie where he has to pretend to be a doctor. But um, to pull off scenes like this, he really wanted to kind of uh, follow doctors around to know. Well, it's a little bit out of, out of his wheelhouse, because he's quite often an action-y star. And then that was right. something else slightly more cerebral until it gets right. to the action-y parts. Right. The other people in the room, the surgeons, are uh, Tom Galuzis, Galuzis. And James F. McK uh, McKinsey. That's their only credits. So I don't know if they're actual doctors. I was I was just gonna say. Or... I was just gonna say th <laughs> there's a certain level in the credits where I don't feel like you should feel <laughs> obligated to do befores and afters. Well, uh, the resident is Mark D. Espinosa. He has 60 credits on IMDb. Really? Wait. So, okay. So. On TV. Who is Mark? Did you say Espinosa? Yes. Which he's, doctor? He's, in the, he's the resident. Um. Yeah, but which one is that? I don't know off the top of my head. They all look the same in Scrubs. It doesn't. That's a fair point. <laughs> um, based on them having to do stuff, I'm actually going to guess he's one of the two guys that kind of maybe gets elbowed out of the way. Yeah. There's See? two guys standing over this uh, probably soon-to-be corpse, um, and he pushes one of them out of the way. And, you know, like, if you're a resident, you're you're probably pretty good at being 
a vascular surgeon, but you're not Kimball level good. So no, nor are you a like actual surgeon. Like you're not actually certified yet as a surgeon, as far as I can tell. You're still a resident in training. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think they let you touch the knives and stuff. Oh no, you can practice. Like you, like he's actually there with blood on his hands. But like if if a if a qualified surgeon says move, you move. Right. Does an anesthesiologist John E. Ellis also is only credit? <laughs> so you wanted to talk about Joseph Casella, or Do. He's, as he's credited in this movie as Joe Casella. Joe Casella, Joseph F. Casella. He is our Detective Rossetti. He is our uh, actor spotlight of uh, the episode. Um, and I think I said this last week. I, I'm a little bit disappointed in the character name that they gave to him in this movie. Uh, you know, this is a Chicago movie. I really feel like Rossetti would be more like an appropriate name if he were an NYPD cop. I would have preferred to see someone a little bit more Midwestern. Um, but this guy is very Midwestern. Um, and as I said, um, he's he is a real Chicago detective. And he was still working for the CPD when this movie was being produced. He had not retired from police work to... Um, you know, just do a little bit of filmmaking. Um, here's what I, I know about that conversation with his chief. Like, I got to take a week off. I'm being I'm going to be in a movie with Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know. I mean, maybe maybe Chicago Police Department was like, hey, you know, uh, that's that's good. Good press for us. Yeah. Um, he was born in 1946. I, I am not entirely sure where because he has no Wikipedia page. That's how. That's how much of a cop and less of an actor he is. I'm going to go out on a limb. I know this might sound like crazy speculation. I think he was born in Chicago. Well, he's friends with Andrew Davis, so the likelihood is pretty good. Also, his accent is incredibly Chicago-y. Wow. Uh, he's just, I, mean, I was going to say he's a, a, a stereotype of a cop, which, which is fitting because he is a cop. He's he is the stereotype of a Chicago cop. A Chicago cop specifically, um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about his police work, because frankly, as you said, it is a little bit more interesting than his acting work. Mostly, the movies he's done are other Andrew Davis movies. Um, yeah, we only have ten credits. He did five of them. Yeah, five of them. Five half, full half of his credits are Andrew Davis. Um, and they are <laughs> The Fugitive, Code of Silence, Stop Me If Any of These Other Titles Sound Familiar, Above the Law. Under Siege, mm -hmm. The Fugitive, and Chain Reaction. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what other movie did he do? Primal Fear. It's primal Fear. Ding, ding, ding. It. <laughs> if you were waiting for, this is your Primal Fear reference of the episode. So, listeners, drink. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't seen Primal Fear, you should go watch it. As a cop, because, again, I think this is where, where he's more interesting. As a cop, um, he actually spent most of his time in special units. Um, he was in the the burglary uh, unit, uh, and he was in major crimes, which I don't know how CPD handles their major crimes, but I watched a lot of The Wire. And in Baltimore, major crimes is like the unit that investigates all of the big high-profile cases um, that somebody has decided we really need to find a, you know, we, we really need to, uh, you know, track people down and get a conviction. So are you saying it's not about what the crime is? It's about high, how high profile? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, okay. you know, I, I think there is a political aspect to law enforcement. Uh, most top 
law officials, uh, uh, you know, district attorneys and such are elected. Uh, and it's in their best interest to make sure that cases like, you know, I don't know, organized crime and things like that get prosecuted. And that requires good police work. So I'm just guessing. Again, I don't know exactly how Chicago handles major crimes. This is one thing I've never understood. Being uh, a spoiler, everyone, I'm Canadian. Well, I was born in Scotland, but I live in Canada, and we don't elect anybody like that here. <laughs> you also don't have any. You also don't have any crime, so you know there's that. I beg to differ, but what we have a little bit less of it. <laughs> it's different crime. It's yeah. probably a little less violent crime. Yeah. Um, but I'm always being confused. I'm like, I'm driving through the states. So there's like signs like elect this so and so for sheriff, and I'm like, yeah. Well, well is this a thing? <laughs> Because we did that thing back in the late 1700s where we were like, King George III, you go take a hike. We believe in democracy, so we're just going to elect everybody to everything. Funny, I didn't, I didn't don't remember that part from Hamilton. I'm not going to say that that's a good idea, but I'm guessing that that's where that comes from. So here's my other fun fact about him, which I think is a super fun fact. Um, because he was a Chicago police officer, he has actually rubbed elbows with some other very interesting people um, who also sort of were like police, but also actor. Um, and uh, let me run them by you and see if any of them ring a bell. He worked with Dennis Farina. Do you know who that is? No. I'm you would probably names though. You would probably recognize him. So Dennis Farina is a, one of the hard-boiled cops who then went on for to a long and distinguished career in Law and Order. Mm -hmm. He also plays the guy who is sort of the antagonist in the movie Get Shorty. Mm -hmm. He's the guy that is you know up against John Travolta. Um, he plays uh, uh, Jennifer Lopez's dad in um, Oh shoot, Out of Sight. Um, he he's a very so if if Joseph if, if Joe Casala is the the most stereotypical police officer in movies, Dennis Farina has got to come in a close second. But Dennis Farina <laughs> Dennis Farina is an amazing actor, um, but he is also very very Chicagoy cop, um, and so the two of them got to work together. Um, he also worked with someone, uh, according to my research, named and I'm gonna might get this wrong, Nick Nickius. Uh, if I was going to pronounce that, I'd probably pronounce it Nikaeus. Okay. Well, I don't know how to pronounce it at all. But I, I do know that he's in a movie um, that I think is very well regarded called Thief, um, which is a Michael Mann movie, I think, from yeah from from the early 1980s starring James Caan, um, which is supposed to be amazing. I've never seen it. Um, Nick Nick Nikaeus in Thief plays a character named Nick. Um but you that's already twice in his name. You might as well know. With it. That's right. He he and he's he's been in, in a bunch of other ones. But the the maybe the most interesting connection is between Joe Kosala and a guy named Chuck Adamson. Uh, now I won't put you on the spot, but Chuck Adamson Chuck Adamson is very famous for working as a Chicago uh, police officer, and then going on to become a uh, TV producer and a screenwriter. And he's best known for taking one of his real-life um, cases and turning it into the movie that became Heat. Oh. Have you ever seen the movie Heat? 
You know, when, every time we record this podcast, I realize just how many movies I have not seen. So, listeners, <laughs> let's start a new drinking game because I don't think we're going to get sh- to mention Primal Fear. Every time I ask Susan if she's seen a movie and she says no, you have to drink. Oh, um, people are going to die of alcohol poisoning. Well, I'll. Maybe I will, if I say yes, you should drink. I'll restrain myself. No, that's not true. You've seen a lot of movies, a lot of movies that I haven't seen. I have a, a definite type for movies. I love action movies. I love sort of disaster movies, and I like uh, like science fiction movies. Okay, well, heat <laughs> heat is none of those things, but it is arguably one of the greatest police procedurals of all time. And so, I bet a lot of our listeners uh, have seen the movie. And so, just so you know, so Chuck Adamson plays the detective role in Heat. He plays the role played by Al Pacino. And he was investigating a criminal whose real name was Macaulay, which is Robert De Niro's character's name in Heat, um, who is the the thief that is being pursued by Al Pacino. It's an amazing movie. Um, and so and and I guess he you know, he was working in CPD uh, at the same time uh, as Joe Casala, at least for a little while. So I'm starting a list at the back of my notebook of movies that I should see. I should. Primal Fear. What can I put heat? Heat is good. I mean, if you got three hours, it's not a it, it's not a small lift. Um, but uh, it it is it will it will be worth your time. That's all I've got about Joe Casale. You got anything else from your side from the research angle? No, just that I love his accent. <laughs> I love his accent too, and I I really like his performance. I like how he like he's all of his questions seem really genuine. And they, they they seem like they're trying to be helpful, while at the same time, I think they're probably also trying to entrap Kimball. Um, but he does seem like he's trying to be nice. He, he Especially when he starts, uh, which I believe might be in the next minute, uh, asking about the one-armed man. He's like, you know, yeah. okay, well, what does he look like? How tall is he? Like, you know, help us help you find this guy. Yeah, I think he even has a line uh, that we're going to hear later this week where he says, like, look, we can't help you unless you help us. Yeah. I say that to my doctors all the time. <laughs> Help you. You don't mean your personal physicians. You mean the people, you, the doctors you work for. No, it's, you're a teacher and I'm an administration person in medical research. And I have 16 doctors that I have to wrangle. And it's like cats. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I've got for this minute, Susan. You got anything else? That's all I got. All right. Well, Susan, how could I forget? There is one thing I have to mention. This is some cleanup on IL-6 from last week's podcast. I watched the video of um, the Muppets seeing She Drives Me Crazy. And I want to say that was a mean thing that you did to me. That is one of the most cringeworthy things I've ever seen. Um, I put it squarely in the category of horror-adjacent experiences for me. And I don't recommend it for anyone. But oh, everybody, is, go out and watch it. It, it is. This of your life, you'll never get back, but you'll you'll thank me for it after. It is wild. Well, you okay. it is. It is like the '90s rolled into cringe. Four minutes of cringe. It's it. If you just mention, like, try to if you just come up with like a top ten of like these are the people I associate with the '90s, you will hear one of them badly attempt to sing a line or two from "She Drives Me Crazy." People from morning shows, from TV shows. I don't know how this happened. I um, don't know why it happened. But now I've had to see it and, you know, damn you. <laughs> I think that was my best discovery so far on this, this, this podcast. Well, then we have nowhere to go but up. That's right. Um, all right. 
Now, listeners, thank you once again for listening to another episode of the Run One Armed Minute. Please, if you can, rate and review us on your favorite podcatching app. We will read any five-star reviews just as soon as we record the episode after they come in. Come and join us on Facebook at Tempest Fugitive, the One Armed Minute search team. We are also on Elon Musk's uh, ego stroking opportunity at one armed minute and you can email us at one arm minute at gmail.com so remember until next time I uh, didn't kill my wife I don't care <laughs> <laughs>